Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Forum, Nature Biotech's podcast where we talk to leading authorities in the field on emerging trends, discuss recent papers, and basically anything else that piques the interest of our editorial team. So my name is Andrew Marshall. I'm the chief editor, at least until the end of August. Um, And today I'm with our senior editor, Bob Schiffey. And uh, Bob, so you got together with two leading lights of the Human Cell Atlas, yeah? Yeah, so recently I sat down and talked with Sarah Teichman and Aviv Regev, who both um, have led the Human Cell Atlas project since it was started. Um, They're the founders and um, have really developed this project and taken it forward in the last five years. They just recently had their their annual meeting, yeah? Yeah, so they just had, I mean, they have several meetings throughout the year. They just had a big meeting at the end of June. Um, So I spoke to them right after this meeting. Uh, and to see, you know, what they discuss there and where they'd like to take the project in the future. Tell, tell our listeners why the Human Cell Atlas is, is kind of really important. Yeah, so up until about 10 years ago, scientists would look at genes and proteins uh, expressed in human tissues at the bulk level, which is looking at millions of cells all at once. Uh, and then back in the early 2010s, it really became possible to measure these gene expression patterns in individual single cells. And this has really been revolutionary to the study of different organs, tissues, the immune system, um, because now we can look at each cell individually to see how it interacts with its neighbors, which RNA or proteins are expressed in any single cell. And the Human Cell Atlas Project is really leading the way here because their goal is to create entire reference maps of every cell type and tissue within the human body. And it's, it's really a big deal, yeah, because it's kind of changed the way biological research has kind of approached human biology. Do you you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think this project really has the potential to impact every aspect of biology and medicine um, because these reference maps will enable researchers to look at molecular mechanisms at the single cell level and see how they govern the development or function of different cell types and basically how all these cell types are coming together to make our bodies work. And for our kind of more um, applied uh, listeners, like the, the area of drug discovery and development, so, so how, how does the Human Cell Atlas kind of apply to some of the things that they think about? Yeah, that's a great question. So 
as we know, animal models have limitations. They don't always accurately reflect human biology. So one of the major impacts of this project is the creation of these maps that um, tell us what's normal in a tissue at the single cell level, and then that would enable us to then see what's abnormal in disease, uh, various diseases, and also use that data to then find therapeutic drug targets, um, target cell types that are of interest or maybe um, acting as abnormally. Um, and that, you know, will open a whole area of medicine in the future. And it's really interesting, yeah, because like one, one of the, um, you know, major challenges that drug discovery programs face is this kind of on-target, um, you know, toxicities. So one of the things that I think really comes out from your conversation is is the our ability to map so many different tissues and organs and then kind of learn a bit about the biology there, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. And I think Sarah and Aviv talk here a good amount about, you know, the impacts in that in that space as well. Great. So um, without further ado, let's go over to episode 16 of Forum. Hi, and welcome to the Forum podcast. I'm really excited to talk today with Aviv Regev and Sarah Teichman about the Human Cell Atlas Project. The HCA is a massive and ambitious undertaking which is aimed to look at gene expression patterns in spatial images of single cells across all tissues of the human body. These data can then be analyzed to understand how cells interact with their neighbors and how they function within a tissue in unprecedented detail and resolution. So, Aviv and Sarah, you are the two original co-founders of the Human Cell Atlas Project, which started back in 2016. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with this idea and how then you were able to expand it to over 2,000 members worldwide? So maybe, maybe I'll start. I think, all, uh, I think great ideas start in multiple places in parallel because their time has come. And maybe that's what happened with uh, Human Cell Atlas. So maybe I'll start with my perspective and then Sarah will give her parallel perspective and I, we can say how we, how we and others came together. So from my perspective in the, you know, in, in the early 2010s, um, it felt possible that we would be able to profile individual cells and several of us in multiple places made um, experimental and computational advances that made it possible. First in small scale, you know, there was a cell here and there, or maybe 10. Our first experiment was 18 cells. And then technologies that allowed to do it in massively parallel scale, like DropSeq. And when that became possible, and we started seeing the biology that we learned from it, at least in my mind, I felt, well, we have everything we need in place to really build a map of the cells of the human body. And maybe we could think of it as a human cell atlas. And in 2014, I had a random opportunity, honestly, at the NIH to go and give a talk along with several other people who gave their own talks on a short 15-minute talk. On, they called them challenge talks. Say a challenge that the world could take on, our scientific world could take on. Um, and I said, I gave a talk for uh, 15 minutes saying, let's build a human cell atlas. So for me, that was kind of the marking point in my own mind. And after that, for the next couple of years, I basically spent time evangelizing, like giving little openings in all of my talks said, 
Why don't we make human cell atlas? This is why it's possible, and this is what we might learn from it. And in early 2016, I got an email from Sarah, who will tell her a parallel story, saying, I know you've been walking around saying that, and we've been thinking about this on the other side of the pond. Um, let's talk. And we started talking and said, the best thing that we can do is bring some scientists together and um, try and pull it off. And that's how we all got together in October 2016 in London. And that became our kickoff meeting for planning a human cell atlas. And Sarah will tell the parallel side um, from her perspective. As Aviv said, the, you know, the, the realization that a, a map of the cells in the human body you know, is foundational for biology and medicine, I think, has been around for, for decades. And um, you know, one like little video that I've used in, in talks recently has been of Sidney Brenner saying, you know, we need this cell map project to map the ourselves. So not model organisms like the worm and so on, but we need to understand human cells. And where I, you know, I, I agree with Aviv, there was a, a tech dev kind of movement. And for me, that sort of started with Fuchu Tang and Azim Sarani down the road from us and mapping a handful of cells, primordial germ cells, developing primordial germ cells um, using single cell RNA sequencing. And of course, that builds on prior technologies. And what that showed was that you could get the the entire transcriptome, the molecular map of human cells. And then there were a lot of other technologies, um, uh, 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 as we've said, developed in, in different places using um, plates, chips, droplets, and so on that led to this sort of resolution revolution in genomics that we're all familiar with now. And that was then kind of, you know, followed with a parallel revolution technologies in terms of spatial genomics. And in, in on, on our side of the pond, what uh, was really fortunate for me was that I moved from the MRC Laboratories of Molecular Biology to the Genome Campus in Cambridge. And with five colleagues from the EBI and Sanger, we started the Sanger EBI Single Cell Genomics Center. And as I was moving and talking to um, my two bosses, because I was a joint faculty, Janet Thornton and Mike Stratton, um, you know, what became clear to me was that on the Genome Campus, there's really scope to think big. And we can think about a cell map of the whole human body with single cell genomics technologies. And that that was then led um, also to the, the Sanger EBI Single Cell Genomics Center, which, which allowed us to sort of work together on scaling and implementing and scaling uh, wet, wet and dry lab technologies kind of uh, towards this sort of aim. And then um, in 26 or in late 2015, I got the opportunity to um, move to the Sanger full-time as head of cellular genetics, so a, a new department at the Institute. And um, you know, thinking about what I'd want to do with that opportunity, um, I thought that it, it would be great to reach out to Aviv towards forming an international community that would work together towards making the cell map. That's when, I, when we started talking to each other and um, we had weekly phone calls. And we decided to, um, to to kick off the effort by by organizing a meeting, and that sort of then led to the the meeting in London in October 2016, where there were about a hundred people, and that was really the beginning of the the international consortium. Yeah. So why was it so important for you to make this such a global initiative? So I felt that yeah, I mean we could work you know we could have worked on this alone. 
on the genome campus in Cambridge or in Boston. Um, but to me, there, there are two reasons, really. One reason is kind of economies of scale and, um, you know, the, the power of, of scientific collaboration. Um, and, and that's a sort of clear driving force is that it's a big project. This is a big project, right? It's, it's sort of hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. Um, it's, 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 it's a massive effort. And the best way to do this is, is for, uh, you know, through economies of scale and having people to work together. But I also felt that the cell atlas is a map that is, uh, uh, you know, of the human body and that belongs to the whole world. And so it's sort of fitting to have the whole world working together on it. I, both of the things that Sarah said, and I'll add two others that were really important for us, scientifically, unlike the genome, which is kind of a static entity in the body by and large, and so my genome is the same when I'm here right now in South San Francisco, and if I flew over to Asia, it would still be the same. My cells are dynamic and they change. And so we wanted to make sure that we have this worldwide true perspective of both the, you know, the ancestral perspective, which is really reflected from our genetics, but also the experiential perspective. And that requires a worldwide initiative. It can't be done from a single place. The second is that science is very different today than it was, say, in the 80s and 90s when the genome, Human Genome Project was conceived and done. It is much more open. It is faster moving. And thanks, really, to technological and computational advances, it is, it is more quickly, quote-unquote, commoditized, meaning a lot of people can do something, not just a select few. And in our field, in single-cell genomics and now in spatial genomics too, this was a big tenet for the scientists doing the work. We made methods that everyone could use, experimental methods and computational methods, so that every biologist could use them, so that every computational biologist could use them. And we wanted everyone who was interested in this to be able to be engaged. And the big payoff that we get from that is that biology of the different parts of our body is so enormously complex. It requires so much expertise. And in this way, we actually got all this amazing expertise. There's pathologists and experts in the physiology of many different kinds of organs and experts in the cell biology of many different kinds of cells. And the only way you get there is by bringing everyone together. And that's very different, again, than the more static view of, say, a genome that you can say, well, we'll just do it in a few places, which is what our predecessors had to do, also because of, you know, technical limitations of their times. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into a bit of the computational challenges you faced in this project in a couple of questions. But was it difficult at all to get researchers on board with, with this project? Were there any hesitations, no, or was it absolutely. everyone bought in, really? I mean, it was amazing how people got in. Yeah, it was. That's yeah. one of the most amazing and gratifying things is like the the scientists sort of bought in immediately, and actually, you know, the funders brought bought in relatively quickly as well, and 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 so we've been incredibly lucky and um, it's been a real pleasure kind of working together across the scientific community. You know, Barbara, it's the coalition of the willing. No one has to join. We have no authority over anyone. It's all about scientific inspiration and joint vision. And people come and vote with their feet because they want to be there, not for any other reason. In our meetings, especially that first one, you know, people had to pay their own way and show up, and they still did. And nothing required them to come. And we don't hand anything. We don't give resources to anyone. And yet people come because they want to do the science. 
And that's also different in terms of the funding for this project. As Sarah mentioned, there is a lot of enthusiastic funders and supporters, but we first came up with the idea and brought people together and the funding followed. And as a result of that, that's why it is such an open community. You don't have to receive a grant from someone in order to be included in the club, which is the way that most large consortia naturally run because there's many different funders from many different countries supporting many different scientists in different ways. And that's been a great um, experience and I think a wonderful partnership with, with diverse funders. And we're very proud of that and very, very grateful for those who support the ACA. Yeah, that's really great to see. So this project has generated, as you've mentioned, so much data. And to date, there's over 100 publications, either in print or on preprint. Can you talk, maybe each of you talk about one project or two that you have that you have would think has been one of the most exciting to come to fruition? So maybe I'll start and I'll, I'll, I'll give two that are really different from each other in their style. One is when you end up with one very small and very specific thing and the other, which is like this, big and expensive. So, so the very specific thing, this is actually one of our earliest uh, projects, earlier projects, is the study where we discovered the ionocyte. And in parallel, another group from the HCA led by Alon Klein and Aron Jaffe also discovered the ionocyte and we published back to back. This is an extremely rare cell type in the lung and the airways that no one knew existed. It didn't have a name for that reason. It's the pulmonary ionocyte to be specific. And we have discovered it by doing, um, you know, a comprehensive single cell profiling study of the airways, first of mouse and then also lungs of human. And when we found it at first, it was only three out of very of, of many cells. So we thought maybe it's an artifact, but it came out to be a real cell type. And one of the things that was exciting about it was that it turned out to be the cell type that expresses CFTR, the cystic fibrosis genes, one of the first genes to be cloned by modern human genetics and kind of a poster child of the benefit of human genetics for human health. And yet for 30 years or so, we thought it was expressed in another cell type where it is not expressed at all. And instead it is expressed in the super rare cell type that we didn't even know existed. So that's one that I think was a big eye opening for people of the potential of finding these needles in the haystack by going big and comprehensive and that those things would be beneficial. And then if I go to the other end, I'll actually go to a study that is very recent from our group and Sarah's and Steve Quake's groups also published uh, similar studies in parallel, which is our cross tissue atlas. So now instead of just going into one tissue and going very deep and finding that one cell type that we didn't know existed, we have the capacity to go into multiple tissues across multiple individuals. And by this look at many different cells and where the genes are expressed. And to tie to that initial study with the ionocyte, we can go back to disease genes, both rare disease genes, like the ones that cause CF, but also common disease genes, like for you know Alzheimer's disease or heart disease or the risk of developing cancer and map them across cells from many organs in the body. And there's big surprises in that because they're not always where you expect them to be. You can find you know rare disease genes for muscle disorders, yes, in myocytes, which are muscle cells, but also in all sorts of accessory cells in the muscles and also in other organs like, you know, the gut that explain comorbidities and other phenotypes that go with these rare diseases and similarly for common disease genes. And that becomes very helpful as we think about everything from diagnosing patients, developing therapeutics, um, targeting gene therapies, all of those things need this map 
to help us navigate. So these are two nice extremes. It's really hard to choose these stories because there are so, so many, and each of them has like these pops of excitement, of just the sheer um, excitement of discovery, but I thought they're, they're nice bookends for where we are today. That's a, a, those are really beautiful examples. And if I may, I'll, I'll also choose two. I'll be quick. So one of um, the ones that I'm most proud of and that's also been chosen by um, Nature Publishing Group as one of the sort of genomics milestones is our map of the of placenta and decidua. That's the maternal fetal interface. And I was interested in um, sort of understanding the, um, the maternal immune system specifically and how it tolerates the paternal antigens because that's a a sort of long-standing mystery is why does our immune system not uh, reject the paternal antigens that that are sort of foreign to 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 the way our immune system is being trained? And in order to understand that, I felt that the the single cell approach would be amazing. Um, that that map of the placenta, I think, is also one of the first uh, complete quote unquote kind of attempts to map a, a human organ in the sense that we were taking biopsies from all the different regions of the first trimester placenta and then from the decidua uh, basalis and decidua paratalis, which is the, the, the uterine side of the placenta, so to speak, which is the, the pregnant form of the endometrium. What that paper kind of shows is several concepts that, that uh, are really the, the power of, of cell atlases. One is the, the sort of comprehensive nature of mapping all different cell lineages from a, an organ and how we can gain an integrative understanding by mapping you know, the immune, the vasculature, the epithelial, in this case also trophoblast cells, which are these really special, interesting and heterogeneous cells on the placental side that form that interface between the, the uterus and, the, and the, the embryo and the fetus. It was then the understanding also the spatial organization of the, the placenta and the decidua. And at that time, we weren't using spatial genomics methods. We were taking markers, predicting markers from the single cell transcriptomes of the different cell lineages to then do immunohistochemistry chemistry and low-plex single molecule fish imaging to understand the structure of the, um, the, the, the uterus, essentially the decidua and, and the placenta. And what that you know, combination of technologies with computational integration showed us was that our pregnant uterus kind of consists of a, a, a zonated architecture of stromal cells. So it's kind of like our, our skin in a way. And those different zones became visible through the, the genomic technologies that kind of showed us the different stromal cell populations. And they weren't really um, uh, clear, you know, from the conventional imaging, for instance, and, and uh, histology. But having the, the molecular and, and cellular details at high resolution and in a sort of comprehensive way kind of uh, showed us the structure of the tissue, if you like. And uh, what it also revealed then, you know, the answer to this mystery of how the maternal immune system tolerates the paternal antigens was that the, we actually have multiple parallel mechanisms. It's a sort of belts and braces type approach where we have both tolerogenic and K-cell populations that interact with the um, the, the trophoblasts. We also have stromal cell populations that are contributing enzymatically to an anti-inflammatory environment um, and that, that exclude uh, killer T cells. And, and so there are multiple mechanisms at work and they sort of were revealed by the, the genomics and computational methods. I also want to give a big shout out to our community during the COVID pandemic. 
And that was really a huge consortium collaborative effort where um, at the very beginning of the pandemic, when we realized there was this incredible you know, emergency that we were all facing, um, we all came together and shared our unpublished data as well as our published data and integrated it to form as, as comprehensive as possible a map of the cells across our human tissues and were able to pinpoint where the viral entry receptors were expressed. And that, you know, was an amazing community effort. The lung biological network formed during that time and, and sort of helped spearhead and coordinate this. Um, you know, we showed that there are cells in the eyes and, and the nasal epithelium that have the viral entry receptors, and that really informed, um, you know, mask wearing uh, policies and, and um, understanding of transmission mechanisms and so on, which later also got extended to the oral cavity. And, you know, that was um, uh, Nature Medicine that published that, Nature Publishing Group. The other one was, was Nature, the placenta that I mentioned in 2018. And Nature Publishing Group then also supported our community by publishing a whole series of um, COVID papers, obviously, um, across all the different journals. And, and so it's really been a fantastic partnership and, and a fantastic community effort. If I can comment on that, I think another really inspiring thing that happened in our community during the pandemic, the, the study that uh, st the initial studies that Sarah described are showing how you use the original reference, the healthy reference to understand infection. But what I also found really inspiring during the, especially the early part of the pandemic, was the lab work that people did to analyze patient samples. And, you know, at first blood samples or nasal samples, but also autopsy samples, similar to the cross-tissue atlas I described for healthy individuals. There is a cross-tissue atlas for uh, individuals, or actually for samples collected at autopsy from individuals who succumbed to COVID-19. Those studies were not just, you know, challenging scientifically. They were. Many of the methods had to kind of be developed on the fly. But it also meant that our scientists who are often, you know, grad students and postdocs who have worked, you know, in normal labs, all of a sudden were donning um, spacesuits and working in a BL3 facility with highly infectious material when there was no vaccine or medicines or anything in sight. This is like early, you know, it was spring 2020. It was, I think, a really life-forming experience for our scientists. I definitely felt it was a life-forming experience for me. And also the collaborative and open spirit in it. The fact that they all were in it together, that they were sharing everything that they had, that they were never thinking about, you know, what paper and the authorship and all of those things that in my, you know, when, I, when am I graduating? All of these things all of a sudden didn't matter. They felt that they were doing something important for their community, for understanding, for science. I think it was a remarkably uh, strengthening experience. And, and we took great pride in it because we felt that the the, the foundation that we laid out in the previous years of the HCA built the trust in the scientific network that then could just kind of spring into action in this way. Um, you know, since we were just talking about the COVID-19 paper, um, do you think you could talk a little bit more about the potential therapeutic applications of these data sets? And, you know, Aviv has touched on this a little bit as well. But um, and how have these really changed since, you know, the original aims of the project were set forward? Have they evolved over time or are the clinical applications still the same as they were in the beginning? Maybe I'll start. <laughs> 
Um, I actually say the way we set up the mission statement for the HCA, you know, for the di monitoring, diagnosing and treating in health and disease, it covers everything. So it was a pretty broad scope from day one, but it was definitely aspirational. We said, we're building the atlas of the healthy reference, and we believe that that atlas would be useful for those purposes. What is different for us now, uh, five years in from the kickoff of the data collection, six years in from the planning process, is that, is that in fact, it is already having those impacts. And that, I think, is faster than we expected. There's still a long way to go and doesn't become a therapy immediately. Developing therapeutics takes a very long period of time. But it has an impact on the research um, that leads to the discovery of targets and to the discovery of actual drugs. And it has an impact on the development work that you do during uh, clinical trials and people are starting to think about how it might have an impact on the diagnosis of actual patients. And that is, I think, faster than we expected. And I'll give you kind of a smattering of examples. So since we started with COVID, I think the COVID studies have identified a whole slew of dysregulated cells. Um, for example, not just in the lungs of patients, immune cells and other cells that are heavily dysregulated, but also in the blood of patients, in livers, in hearts, in kidneys, in many organs that we know now are affected during COVID-19, especially during severe COVID-19. And so some of these cells in the lungs, for example, could be targets for therapeutic intervention. And what is remarkable is that many of them are similar to cells that we see in diseases that are chronic diseases of the lung like idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So we think maybe similar disease processes are taking place on an accelerated timeline in COVID patients and on a much slower kind of chronic disease timeline in pulmonary fibrosis patients, but it could be similar disease mechanisms. And if it is, then you are going after the same targets, which is extremely, could be extremely beneficial to patients one day. One day being an emphasis because it takes time. But there's many other ways. For example, when you develop a drug, you develop it against a target. And one of the concerns is always on-target toxicity, meaning you're actually hitting your target, but it's present in other places, and that's not going to be beneficial for the patient. What is better than a map of all of the places and all of the cells in the body where genes are expressed in order to tell you where those liabilities might reside? It could avoid spending a lot of time on something that's a dead end or finding ways to avoid these liabilities. That's a kind of an immediate, highly useful thing. Or, and this is, you know, we just had an HCA meeting in Vienna uh, last week. Alex Marson gave a fantastic presentation on cell therapy. And if cell therapy, the therapy is cells. And so when you think about it, and this was something really beautifully highlighted in Alex's work, it's everything from finding the ways to manipulate, in his work is on T cells, it's to manipulate T-cells so that they would have better properties as cancer, as anti-cancer therapeutics. But also as you make the T-cells as a therapy, you use things like single-cell RNA-seq to characterize them in order to know whether they are what you want to actually put in a patient's body. So there's many, many ways like that, how you screen for drugs. There have been studies already, for example, from Jason Durin called Trapnel, showing how to do small molecule screens with using single-cell RNA-seq as their readout, and now you can compare it to what happens in a patient's body based on, say, profiling tumor cells straight from patients. These kinds of works are things that we 
kind of hallucinated and talked about and wrote about in our manifesto and our white paper and so on. But there weren't any real examples. They were just, we believe that something like this could happen. And we're seeing that even a partial map, which is what the HCA has today, is already allowing people to do some of that work. I mean, I'd add to that sort of saying that, you know, you think, well, the, the human solace is a healthy reference map of the human body, right? It's kind of the the blueprint in a way of ourselves in a in a healthy reference state. And you think, how is that useful for disease? You know, and and, and what we've seen is that actually it's incredibly useful already per se, um, you know, in terms of being a sort of guidebook to the viral entry factors. Aviv mentioned a guidebook to uh, genetic variants uh, when she when she talked about you know her paper on common complex disease variants and rare disease variants earlier. And, um, you know, also a guidebook in terms of uh, the, the drug targets and where they could be um, uh, acting in the healthy reference body. So even having that healthy reference map without your disease comparators is useful in and of itself. And, and then in terms of engineering cells, you know, and Aviv mentioned T cells as therapeutics. Well, yet there's the therapeutic angle. Um, but kind of digressing for a moment, there's also um, the, the research reagent angle. So we engineer cells, you know, also in order to understand mechanisms uh, that act in cells and tissues because we can't do experiments on humans. So we use an you know, IPS drive cells, primary and IPS drive organoids and so on and so forth. And for that human biology, having the human cell as healthy reference map is sort of the blueprint for those engineered cells and and it tells us how faithful they are to the in vivo scenario and so really the 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 human cell is as a as a guidebook you know for uh, pathogens variants drugs and so on and as a blueprint for the in vitro systems and in vitro models of human biology i think is you know an incredible utility in and of itself Yes, and I do also just uh, for a couple of minutes want to circle back to the computational biology question here because this has been such a major aspect of putting this project together is the development of these computational methods and how quickly they've scaled in the last five years has been really exciting to watch. So to in your opinion, what were the biggest hurdles computationally uh, that had to be overcome? Maybe, maybe I'll start by saying that single-cell RNA-seq, and especially massively parallel single-cell RNA-seq, which is what we all do these days, almost invariably, regardless of whether you use droplets or split pool or whatever technique, really relies on a fundamental computational understanding, both of biology and the data. Because it relies on the fact that we don't actually profile all the RNA in the cell. We actually profile a small, randomly sampled fraction of the RNA in the cell. And yet we can find the signal, the signal being the relationships between cells and the relationships between genes. And the reason for that is our understanding, our computational understanding, that this data is very structured. The gene expression is very structured. There's a correlation structure there, that cells are not willy-nilly there. They actually organize themselves in a high-dimensional space and in slow-dimensional representations. And as a result of that, sampling a large number of cells, each of them with a relatively small randomly sampled fraction of its RNA, would yield the kind of signals that algorithms can see, even if for humans, initially, it looks a little bit like noise. That was an early 
insight in our field, a very early one. It's still one that sometimes people find hard to accept. They're like, but I want to know the exact expression of every gene in that one cell that we just blew up and made gone forever. And we say, no, no, it's actually the aggregate signal that we're looking for by doing a lot of these individual cells and it will tell us the correct answer. And our algorithms build on that. After that come many, many, many other insights. For example, you can find continuous patterns even from a single static sample, and that led to the notion of the pseudo time. That was again an early concept in our field. We still use this concept in many ways and make better and better and better as a community, better and better and better algorithm to do that. There is a signal in expression profiles, not just of RNA, of proteins and other things, that actually encodes many other things that happen to cells, for example, where they're positioned in space. And we can use this information in order to map cells to where they are coming from, even though we actually dissociated them at first. There's many things like that. And in each case, if you boil it down, it's coming from having a conceptual computational understanding of biology. There's a reason why these things work because of how biological systems are architected. And there's a reason why we can pick it out from data because what algorithms can do under these circumstances. But it led not just to better analysis of the data once it was collected, it actually led to the kinds of experiments that we do in this field. The push to move from, let's just do a few cells really deeply profiled into let's do a large number of cells very sparsely profiled was a computational reasoning. And then it led to a lab method, and then those lab methods became very successful at what we actually want to do. And there's several examples of that in our field. And I think that's that's kind of an exciting and, and maybe rather unique aspect of this field, and it led to its uh, to its great success. Yeah, I mean, Aviv and I both are both obviously computational biologists by training yes. and by background. <laughs> so, um, we are, you know, we, we come from that vantage point. And um, I'd say that the project has really been unusual in that from the very beginning, you know, a data coordination platform, an analysis working group, the computational community were at the, the heart and at the center of this project from the get-go, along with genomics technologists, biological experts, the clinical, the uh, research community and so on. So that's maybe somewhat unusual compared to um, the previous research projects. And, and um, again, you know, we may be a bit biased, but the computational methods, as we've said, they're absolutely crucial to understanding these data sets. And that's from the, the sort of low-level processing, cleaning and so on methods to the, the biological interpretation, to the um, sort of systematic classification of cell types, cell states, their dynamics, and so on. So I feel that the project has had a kind of symbiotic relationship with computational methods development. You know, absolutely, the, the sheer amount of data and the biological questions have motivated the computational methods development, but it's been a, it's gone the other way in that the computational methods and analyses have also motivated experiments, like Aviv said. So it's a, it's a sort of virtuous cycle, and that's um, been incredibly exciting and of course in the long term you know it's clear that the the lasting legacy of the project will be the interpreted and digested form of the data you know there'll be few people who'll be 
downloading the raw data and reprocessing everything from scratch. It'll be much more uh, the the insights that come from the computational data integration that will be served and and used and queried by the community, like the you know pre predefined cell types, cell states, tissue microenvironments, and so on. And that all that's all determined by the computation. If you come from the kind of with the, the meeting we just had in Vienna fresh in my mind, the two big, two of the very big topics that were discussed were integration, which is really a computational challenge, how you take the pieces of the atlas and you put them together in querying, which is only just starting. Because until this point, most of the data sets were collected as a data set and analyzed in order to ask all sorts of questions. But now increasingly people say, well, we have these, you know, 60 something million cells and they come from these thousands of individuals and these many samples. And I want to ask a question of it. And so where is my cell? I come with a new cell. Can you find other cells that look like that? We saw an example of that in the in the Vienna meeting or where are uh, where's a program of genes that are all going together in the same signature that I'm interested in or um, you know, where might something be spatially located? There's many, many questions like that, that people now want to ask. And some of them seem deceptively simple, but they're actually quite challenging to define computationally and execute. Not just because of the scale of the data, but even just in principle. And then comes the scale. So you need to also be able to do it fast and efficiently and, and successfully in the face of noise and, and many, many other things. That's, that's some of the things that are, you know, that computational biologists are going to be busy with for quite a while now. No, I was just going to say the era that we're in is the era of assembling the atlas, at least in terms of the suspension zone of the data. You know, we're now at a juncture where um, the bio networks, whether they're individual organs or whether they're distributed systems, um, like the immune system and so on, are, are really thinking about assembling all of these diverse data sets that have been generated in different parts of the world with different technologies. And you can imagine like the computational challenge there. And, and so that's really where the community stands at the moment. So one is, um, you know, making the most of the data that we already have at this juncture, which is sort of, you know, over 15 million, almost 100 million cells um, in, in suspension and increasing amounts of spatial data. And then the other is basically creating roadmaps for um, essentially completing a comprehensive atlas, you know, map a comprehensive in mapping with spatial modalities and multiomics modalities organs and systems. And so those are really the two, you know, again, the computational and the experimental that are informing each other um, and the, the sort of um, state of play of where we're at right now in the community. And do you see any other next steps for the future that we haven't touched on? So, so um, as we've said, integrating the data, making comprehensive roadmaps for individual organs and systems, Thirdly, we need um, user-friendly portals um, kind of for, the, for people to interact with the data in, in a digested way, as we've discussed. And then sort of thinking further towards the future, uh, we need to think about how the, the sort of cell atlas technologies are, are hinged within a common coordinate framework, a multi-scale map of the human body. So those are really the major things that I see. Uh, Aviv, yeah. do you want, is there anything you want to add? I will, I, I, will emphasize, I will emphasize the last one. I think the bigger challenge 
is, and we've known that. This is not a new challenge for us. The ACA always had what we call the spatial branch and the goal of having a common coordinate framework for the body. But that is what we're, is becoming possible to do now in earnest. So to harness things in the physical space in a conceptual way, not just in the, this came from this XYZ coordinate, but in a way that's a little more abstract than that, so it's generalizable. But to be able to say, this is how molecules relate to cells, how cells relate to histology, how histology connects to anatomy, is not yet something that the human cell atlas has built, but it has to build over the coming few years. And that's both an experimental challenge again, you need to do the right kinds of measurements for these things, but it's primarily a computational challenge. And for me, at least, what's really exciting about this is the huge potential of uh, machine learning algorithms in this context at mapping not just between different scales, but through nonlinear transformations. Because we do know that there's no ether, meaning molecules make cells and cells make tissues and tissues make organs. But um, we don't really understand how that mapping happens. And as a result, when we think about humans and about organisms more generally, we tend to look at each of these levels of organization roughly separately from each other. In, in genetics, we still map, at least from genotype to the phenotype, but we don't really understand the transformation that leads from one to the other. And I think that's gonna be one of the big, uh, the big challenges and the, what could be a great outcome of HCA, that by starting with this systematic view of the cells and how they're organized in space, in histology and anatomy, we can, we can bring these things together. And that's where machine learning is going to be extremely beneficial for us. And I think that's a great spot to end right there. Um, thank you again, Sarah and Aviv. It has been wonderful to talk with you. And I'm really looking forward to all of your exciting research to come. Thank you, Thank Barbara. you, Barbara. It was a lot of fun. Great. It was fantastic to come and talk to you. Okay, that's all, folks. Thanks to Barb and her guests, Aviv and Sarah, for providing their insights. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, please search Nature Biotechnology and Forum. You can follow us on Twitter with the handle at Nature Biotech. We look forward to welcoming you to our next episode of Forum, where Bob is going to be talking to two leading lights in a very different field of xenotransplantation. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.